Hey guys, sorry, I don't mean to go all FDR on you or anything, but here's the new deal. All the interviews are now going up first at scotthortonshow.substack.com. Of course, they'll all be going up at scotthorton.org the next day, and the archives going back to 1999 will still be free for you there at scotthorton.org. But I got to generate revenue, you know. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys. Again, I have on the line Daniel L. Davis, senior fellow at Defense Priorities and former lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. And, of course, he's a Bronze Star winner, went to Iraq War One, Iraq War Two, and Afghanistan, and is a military strategist and writer and was a great whistleblower, heroic historical whistleblower on the war in Afghanistan in the year 2012. Look that story up if you don't know it already. Welcome back to the show, Danny. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Man, I'm really happy to have you here, and I'm happy to have you to rely on uh, for all your great analysis about what is going on with the war in Ukraine. Your last one at 1945 is called Biden's Ukraine strategy could start a nuclear war with Russia. But man, I just interviewed Peter Van Buren yesterday about how don't worry, Scott, that's not going to happen. So let's hold that thought for just a second. Can we first start with an update on the battlefield in Ukraine uh, where the Russians are ascendant and descendant and on the other side with uh, the Ukrainian forces as well? I'm reading that there's a final assault by the Ukrainians on uh, Kherson, at least in the making right now, um, or that it's already happening. The Russians are uh, withdrawing some of their forces down to the south side of the Dnieper River there. And uh, I don't know, take it from there and then take us to the Donbass and uh, give us an update. Last time we spoke to you was right after the um, Ukrainians had made their major success around the uh, city of Kharkiv there on September uh, 10th and 11th. And we yeah. followed up shortly after that. So uh, let us know what the hell is going on on the ground there, sir. If you yeah, the, we'll start and we'll just kind of start in the south and move our way up. Uh, as you pointed out there, the, by all accounts, uh, Ukraine uh, has reportedly uh, stockpiled up to 60,000 troops and are, are ready to storm the city of Kherson. Uh, Russia is definitely prepared for this. There's a, and there's I'm a sorry, Danny, threat. forgive me. I, I should have said for people not too familiar with the battlefield here, we're talking about a major city just from the looks of it. I'm calling it. Maybe someone else already thought of this or not or debunked this. Looks like the New Orleans of the Dnieper River to me here was the last major city at the southern end of this important river that bisects the country. And, the, and it's northwest of the Crimean Peninsula. And it's one of the first cities the Russians took when the war started in February. Right. 
Yeah, I believe it was uh, like within a week. Uh, it was the, they just stormed uh, straight in from uh, you, uh, the Crimea mm-hmm. and, and took that. It was the first. And importantly, it's just like a point. isn't it just like a hundred miles from Odessa as well? That's like from Austin to Waco. Yeah. That's nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very close in there, and 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 even I think just uh, twenty or so miles from uh, Mykolaiv, uh, which is another pretty important city that Ukraine has. That's basically where they've been facing off against each other uh, for the duration of this for almost all all of the what uh, almost eight months, I guess. Uh, well, sorry but, for interrupting your train of thought there. I just want to make sure people have in their mind's eye where we're talking about in the war here. Got it. Okay, so yeah, that's this is the southernmost uh, area of of the battlefield and uh ukraine has uh, i'm sorry russia has held this as i said from the outset uh ukraine has started this uh, kyrgyzstan offensive actually in on august the 28th and their initial uh, attacks were just disastrous failures in, in that they attacked across open land they came out of their defensive positions and russia was prepared for them and just uh just caused thousands and thousands of casualties and just chewed them up when they came across the open area. But uh, Ukraine has just been relentless and they have suffered just unbelievable levels of of uh, soldiers killed and wounded, but they could continue to push down. They captured uh, in a second push uh, in, in September, uh, probably a good solid 20 miles along that Dnipro River that you referred to there that, that bisects the country. And they've kind of started now from there uh, and now that they've got about three or four different directions, they're allegedly preparing to assault. Russia, meanwhile, uh, has not they, – they haven't been withdrawing their military from Kyrgyzstan. They've been withdrawing the civil population because they know this big fight's coming. And, of course, with this annexation they just had, they claim these are actually Russian citizens, so they want to get them out of the way, out of harm's way before the fighting starts. So they've been uh, withdrawing uh, about 60,000 people or at least that's the plan here within the next few days, they're, they're streaming out of there. But at the same time, they're also digging in, they're building trenches, bunkers, concrete fortifications. I mean, they're really digging in for a big fight. Now, here's the big issue. If if this is just a straight-up fight, then, then Russia could literally hang on for months, and I'll explain why a two-month period is critical. Uh, but the biggest threat to this is if the Ukraine side is uh, able to destroy a certain dam on the Dnipro River, it could completely flood the the plain down there and, and swamp areas where that Russia needs in order to supply the garrison there at Kyrgyzstan and also to use to place its artillery in there. They have to be at a certain range from the from the front lines or they they're not going to be able to impact the fight. If the Ukraine side does blow this river and completely flood that area, it floods the back side of of Kyrgyzstan but leaves the front side open. So they can attack, but that Russia can't withdraw. They can't take any of their equipment with them. They can't get new equipment in, uh, and they're basically trapped. So if they if that's the case, they could probably escape personnel by going through the marshes, but they wouldn't be able to take anything with them. They would literally lose everything they have. So it's a it's a real uh, risk for for uh, the Russian side. The the downside for Ukraine is that if they take that path. They have a good chance uh, of taking the city, though I'll say if Russia is still contested and they have stocked up enough ammunition, food and water, they can hold out for months in there because it's so hard to attack a city as, as the Russians saw when they took Mariupol and how costly that was. But then Ukraine, if they succeed, though, because of the flood, it will be sometime next year before they could go another meter beyond that. So that is as far as they could go 
uh, and they won't be able to, to put any more pressure on Russia, certainly not in the Crimea direction for the, you know, for the foreseeable future. So that's kind of where it is in the south. Now, in the in the middle, the middle area in the in the Zaporizhia and the Donbass area, Russia still continues its incremental moves in the Donbass. They've actually never stopped that. And they're close to uh, almost completely capturing the city of Bakhmut, which is very important from a tactical perspective. Uh, and then and Advivka and a couple of other areas there. But it's very slow going because the, the Russia just doesn't have as much power to put in there anymore because they have to defend in these other areas. Um and then the, the last areas in the north in the Kharkiv area, which you just mentioned, you know, there was that, that big advance in September. Mm-hmm. It's kind of slowed down now, but uh, apparently Ukraine is going to try one more push in there before we get into the winter time. Uh, it's just unclear if they have the capacity to make all these pushes in, in all these different directions. So it's it's unsure, clear they can do that. And so far, it looks like they've been prioritizing the, uh, the Kyrgyzstan fight in the far south. So that's kind of where things are at the moment. But underlying all that, and I think this is really important to understand the context, is that because of Putin's uh, mobilization that he announced and and is now well underway, uh, sometime in late November, early December, uh, it's likely that you're going to see the first major incursion of Russian forces in the neighborhood of 70, 80, maybe even 100,000. You know, that's a, a massive increase in the amount of Russian troops that it's not clear that the Ukraine side could could withstand that, especially if Russia focuses them in any one area. And it's unclear where they would do that at this point. But it looks like the Ukraine is doing everything they can to capture as much territory as they can now while they still have the advantage over Russia because they have a manpower advantage of up to four to one over Russia right now. But come December time frame, that that is going to reverse. And then, uh, you know, things could take on a very different nature. So whatever you see happening right now, um, it's not going to portend any change in the war one way or the other. It's just going to set the stage for what's going to happen in November and December. Mm-hmm. OK. And so tell us so what you're basing all that on as far as I mean, we know that Russia announced a partial mobilization and, you know, heightened conscription and called up their reserves and all of that. But. So then what? You got satellite pictures of their forces building up on the other side of the line there, or what do you know? Yeah, you know, this this is one of the there, – there's been an interesting change in, in the Russian side uh, in, in terms of their media coverage, their, uh, their war bloggers, and, and several others, is that uh, in, the, in the first part of this um, – well, really, uh, up until the, the, the uh, offensive in, in the Kharkiv area from the Ukraine side – at first, the, the Russian Ministry of Defense kept giving the same old happy talk. They always have, oh, we killed 200 uh, enemy soldiers today and destroyed four aircraft and all this kind of stuff. And yet the, the Russian people were going, dude, we see on the ground we're, we're getting driven back mile after mile, day after day. And, and they got sick of being told lies to. So they actually revolted and rebelled. And and uh, the, the Russian government apparently has taken a choice that says, OK – you know, it's it's stupid to tr- keep trying to lie to people just to make it sound good. We're going to actually start telling the truth, the good and the bad. And so there's there's been a, a refreshing change where they're they're being honest about what's going on. And there's a pretty accurate picture coming out of the Russian side. And what you do, and I think we talked about this the last time I was on your show, is that you take a look at all the sources that you have, like the Maxar images that come out, the, the satellite images that are publicly 
shown. Uh, you see the, the Ukrainian claims about where the battle lines are. You see the U.S. and the British intelligence, which is another common source of information. The Institute for a Study of War. You see all those, and you can get a pretty consistent picture up to where the lines are and where people are moving back and forth. So there's actually a, a pretty good ability to see where the lines are. And of course, you know, it remains to be seen, and no one knows this for sure, where the blow is going to fall when the Russians uh, put this next uh, uh, phase into operation in the December timeframe. But it's guaranteed, it's certainly coming. All right. Now, so, and there's a couple of different major ways to interpret the Russians' official annexation of these four major oblasts here, not just the Donbass, but also Zaporozhia and Kherson as well. That um, this is a hell of a bargaining chip to negotiate, or it's Putin throwing his hat over a very tall fence and swearing that he is going to fill all four of those provinces with what hundreds of thousands of Russian troops eventually in order to, to the degree it would have to be that the Ukrainians give up trying to take it back. And he's officially declaring this is Russian territory. Now, on the other side, you have the Ukrainians who are willing to fight to the death here, clearly, and the Americans who are willing to fight to the last Ukrainian in terms of sending all their weapons in. So you really do have uh, unstoppable force and immovable object type of a situation going on here in terms of Russian manpower and proximity, but NATO technological superiority. And in fact, I'll go ahead and set it up this way. I read Doug McGregor at Conflict of Interest. He's your old commanding officer. Everybody should know. <clears throat> but I read him saying, oh, man, this is going to be so bad uh, for the Ukrainians when it's all said and done. We're going to wish we hadn't have done this. He wrote that in the American Conservative magazine. But then I was reading this thing in the, in the New Yorker. And in the New Yorker, they said, well, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all the Joint Staff and his guys and everybody, uh, they've got special operations forces and CIA on the ground. And they're running all these war games and battle plans, and they've got all these really fancy algorithms that, de that determine the rate of artillery fire and all of these things. And with HIMARS and with HARM missiles, those are the anti-radar missiles, the HIMARS are the much you know higher quality, longer range artillery that we've given them and so forth. And with the training, they said they put them in Poland they tra or in Germany, they train them up for two or three weeks and the guys are ready to use a one of these high mar things and that it's totally made the difference and that um it's uh you know the advantage is on uh ukraine's side now as you're saying they got russian manpower waiting for the the other uh foot to drop here or whatever the other shoe to drop was a damn cliche anyway but so uh which is it here unstoppable force or immovable object and what the hell is going to happen in the medium term yeah you know i i, I... Don't don't put any stock at all in, in what the Pentagon is saying. If, if I haven't seen that particular report, but if that's what you're saying, I, I, I think. Well, one of the things about it, I, I guess, thinking. let me let me say one specific thing about it to try to make it at least sound credible from their point of view's you know argument, which is that this is how they plotted their success in northern Luhansk there in Kharkiv was that they did all these different war games, and then the Ukrainians figured out what we'll do is we'll divide them and we'll do an offensive down in uh, Kherson, and that'll divide the Russian forces, and then we'll surprise them with a major offense at Kharkiv, and then it worked. 
And it worked because well, they were so smart and they used their computer programs and war games and battle plans to outsmart the Russians who are so dumb and slow that they fell for it. And so now they know that they can do that again and again until they win. That's essentially the narrative there in the New York. Okay. Well, that's the, forgive the, forgive my bluntness. That's BS. That's not how it happened. And if they ran the algorithms, whatever they can, they're happy to do that. But the, and I've written about this extensively already. What happened is Russia made an initially good decision to prioritize the Donbass fight. And then they fought what's called economy of force missions in the Kherson and in the Kharkiv area. Uh, and this is an April timeframe in order to hold the Ukraine uh, defenders in position in those areas so that they weren't able to mass all their troops and fight in the Donbass. And that made sense because then you see that Russia had success with that when they took uh, Mariupol, uh, Lysychansk, and Severodonetsk up through July. So it worked then. Russia's problem is that they didn't change anything. And then they started this incremental slow progress to try to limit the risk to their troops. And by doing so, they allowed Ukraine to, to recover from the blow and to say, okay, well, now that we see what's going on. So what they did very smartly, the Ukraine side, is they said, okay, these economy of force missions, they're just, you know, have the least amount of troops they can just to hold us. So they can't, they're not going to go on any offensive. So what they did is they prepared these large number of troops. Now, remember, Ukraine mobilized right off the bat. So they had, they started with somewhere around 250,000 troops, and then they expanded to around 700,000. So now all of a sudden they have uh, a three and in some places a four to one, actually across the theater, about a four to one advantage over the Russians in manpower. That's the first thing to understand. It's not like they're they're uh, you know swamped by the larger Russian force. They're actually significantly advanced above them in numbers. Now, when you add all this NATO stuff, all this NATO training that you talked about here, then Ukraine very smartly put an eight to one advantage in this thinly held area in the Kharkiv area and rolled over it. You, you don't have to have any kind of special capabilities if you just have uh, you know some some artillery and some some tanks. And then you go an eight to one advantage against a thinly held line, you're going to win it. And now then Russia, because they were they didn't change their stat tactics and they were, uh, I guess, kind of arrogant to think that the, the Ukraine wasn't going to do that. They weren't prepared for it. Those 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 stupidities have been burned off now and they're fully aware of what's what they're facing. The, the, the Russians are now. So they're not going to get caught that easy anymore. And that's why you see that all these advances uh, after these massive, you know, thousands of square kilometers they took, now it's kind of slowed down. You haven't seen much movement, especially in the north, in the last uh, almost four weeks now. They're, they're still trying to get this place called Svotovo uh, across the Oldskill River, and, and who knows if they're going to get it, but they have failed in the last uh, two weeks to, to break through that. So we'll see if that works, because Russia then moved up some reinforcements. So there's no more surprise. All the surprises are gone. So you can't repeat that. Once you once you use the element of surprise and you burn through a lot of the personnel that it cost to win that, you don't have the striking power that you had anymore. And here's the key thing, Scott, which no one's talking about. Now, I bet it's not in that article, is that the the amount of tanks and other armored vehicles that Ukraine uh, paid to to win this in losses, both in the north and in the south. There's no replacement for those. Now, there's lots of artillery pieces that the West has given millions of rounds of ammunition and, and rockets, you know, et cetera, drones and, and other kinds of help. But what you haven't seen and Ukraine has been pleading for is modern battle tanks. Since since they got about 250 uh, T-72s from Poland in, in like the first uh, month or two of the war, no one else has given them any, meaning that all of these losses that they've taken, 
and all these the, the tanks and stuff that have been destroyed, there's no backfill for that. Now then you roll in all these hundreds of additional Russian tanks because they do have vehicles that they can uh, bring back up to out of storage, you know, modernize them and being prepared. Even if they're not top of the line, it's better than none. And if, if all you have is, uh, you know, infantry fighting vehicles and trucks, et cetera, on the other side, even the oldest T-55 tank can destroy all of those. So if you don't have modern tanks on the other side, then you're going to have a lot more difficulty making any kind of headway. And if you then now then if the Russians are smart, finally, uh, and they certainly weren't in the initial phase and they massed this, their armored forces in, in a concentrated area, they can potentially blow through the, the Ukrainians and take back everything they lost in the, in the first part of, the, of a winter offensive, for example. And it remains to be seen whether the Russians can pull that off. They have the manpower, whether they're going to apply them uh, effectively by historic terms is, is certainly an open question. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But the idea that the Ukraine, because they are fighting from their home territory, are going to succeed uh, may not be the case because, you know, you still have military fundamentals, combat fundamentals that don't care who's on the right, and who's on the left or who's the home team or who's the visiting team. All it cares about is who has the combat mass, who has the combat power and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's going to come down to. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine, and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. All right, well, you have a couple articles here, Danny, about how you're concerned that this really could escalate into nuclear war. And you quote all the Biden people saying, as long as it takes, as long as it takes. Now, of course, we know that on the Russian side, especially now that they've gone so far as annexing these provinces and all of this thing, that... Uh, it would be extremely hard for them to back down from that uh, to face a total defeat there. And as you warn in your article here, if Biden gets what he wants and they're talking about kicking them all the way out of every last bit of the Donbass and the Crimean Peninsula, too, now that if they get anywhere near that and it really looks like that's going to happen, Putin at that point will not cry uncle. He'll start throwing A-bombs around. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine a circumstance that would be any different than that, because, it's, I mean, now that that, that uh, he annexed those four territories, he told the people of Russia and those and the, the Russian speakers in that part of, of eastern Ukraine, they are Russian citizens now. If he allows them to then be methodically defeated 
and you know you've seen already in the Kharkiv area where the, this current offensive in the places where the Ukrainians went back over, they just just terrorized the you know the people of Russian speakers behind there and you know called them all uh, traitors and all this kind of stuff and throwing them in jail and just you know abusing them from their perspective. Uh, and, and, you know, that terrified all these the, the rest of the Russian speakers there. And if he if Putin allowed them to be abandoned and defeated uh, and, and turned back over to the to the Ukrainian side, I, he, there's no way he stays in power. But if you're talking about Crimea, especially, I mean, that's sacred Russian territory. And, and I, there is no Russian leader on the you know, in the country that's going to allow the NATO, Ukraine, you know, any kind of force at all to take that back from Russia and and leave all their nuclear weapons in the sheath. There, there's just no chance in my mind they would do that. So if we think that that's the definition of success and Zelensky does and Biden and many others have just seconded his statement, then you basically set up a situation to where if you accomplish your military objective, you raise the chance of the use of nuclear weapons to almost a high probability, not even possibility. Mm-hmm. And that is a foolish decision and a foolish strategy to have. Well, then it seem like everybody's overconfident that, come on, it's not going to come to that. So that way, yeah, you know, we can do more thing. like this. Yeah, that, that, but see, and that's, that's exactly what we've seen from the beginning. You know, Russia had all these claiming red lines and, you know, if you do this NATO, then there's going to be, you know, consequences, et cetera. And you see, we've progressively crossed a bunch of those and the world didn't come to an end. So now that we're kind of having the idea that, you know, we can probably do whatever we want. We can keep crossing these red lines. And, you know, you see that the North Nord Stream pipelines were destroyed by somebody. You see the Courage Bridge that was hit, which was apparently off limits before. And now that got hit. Well, you know, now that you see Russia did finally push back after the Kerch Bridge was hit, and that's why this salvo of destruction of the U- Ukrainian energy system is continuing to go on even as we speak. Uh, but the idea that, you know, yeah, Putin won't do that, so we can keep pushing, we can keep doing this, is setting up a dangerous precedence because all it takes is one time for him to finally say that enough, and now then life as we know it is, is no longer the same. Because if one tactical nuclear weapon is used, no matter what the circumstance it crosses a threshold that this just changes everything. And, and look, Scott, the idea that, you know, if nuclear weapons are used, that people are, are the leaders in the West and in Russia are going to say, OK, now it's serious. Let's let's be smart about this. Let's be wise. Just seems pretty low to me. I, I think that to the contrary, you'll have hotheads and stupid people acting foolishly in, in emotions. And, and I just can't see anyone going. Okay, that's enough. You you know, I just don't see a lot of material in our leadership do that. I see lots of hotheads and and, and arrogance that uh, I just can't imagine making good decisions in that environment. The only chance we have is not to get to that point. Yeah, well, so, I mean, it really does seem, well, the the other side of the narrative from it's not going to happen is that these Democrats are just completely crazy. That they just can't sit in a room and admit to each other how dangerous this is. I mean, I don't know. On the other hand, so Biden did mention Armageddon. It seemed like he brought it up to say, look, that's why we have to kind of maybe find a way to negotiate. But then, you know, as Van Buren said yesterday, that not soon or anything. Like, they want this thing to go on and on and on and on. But they just want to give Putin an off-ramp right before he reaches for his atom bombs. They want to make sure that he has 
some kind of face saving, something to stop short of that. But not, Biden was not saying, OK, OK, this has gone on long enough. He was saying, no, 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 still whatever it takes, but just whatever it takes, but also short of provoking omnicide. And, you know, he just figures that he and Sullivan and Blinken and Austin, that they can walk that tightrope. It'll be fine. Well, see, and that's that's why I, say I worry about people who think they can control, you know, so tightly something that's volatile. Uh, it's a dangerous, dangerous play because that also assumes that the other side is going to be following your playbook. And I'm pretty sure that's uh, not a good bet to have. But, you know, to, the Biden administration, you no, know, it, it, it's almost like they've got a two track and a, and a competing two track playbook here, because on the one hand, you know, Biden has shown some restraint in that, you know, as I mentioned a second ago, he still has not given them any of our modern M1 battle tanks uh, and, and some of, and, and certainly lot large numbers of these high Mars and, and some of the other gear that well, coming they're, soon, they're, though, they're right? Patriots, like, if, et I mean, if there's this massive infantry invasion by the Russians coming the next pace of the escalation, well, then what is Biden going to do? Sit there well, and that's, watch that's the, the Ukraine get crushed? He's boxing himself. That's why I say he's boxing himself into a corner by making these statements. We'll do whatever it takes as long as it takes. And then so far, he's not done what it's what it's necessary for Ukraine to actually have a decent, legitimate shot at driving Russia out. So it's like he recognizes that would be a bad place that so we hasn't done that. But what does he do if if this, you know, this winter offensive that Russia is, is certainly planning starts to roll the Ukraine's back, you know, in massive, like basically reverse what happened in September. And now all of a sudden you've got Ukraine forces being driven back left and right. Are they going to then say, yeah, I'm still not giving you tanks and damn, sucks to be you. I, I just, it's hard for me to see that happening, but, uh, you know, then, then you have, you know, we get right back into the same issue of, you know, how far do you go? And right. that's the problem. They painted themselves into this horrible situation. Yeah. Where the best the case scenario has. is that they betray these people like among tribesmen. Exactly. Right? That's yeah. exactly right. That's what you're facing. You may have to betray them and say, yeah, y'all are on your own now. Or you say, no, you get everything and then you risk all of our security by crossing the nuclear threshold. And, yeah. and there's that's a well, I, I say that's a no win situation to no win situation the way they're doing it. There is a situation and an answer, but it needs to be happening now before the Ukraine suffers yeah. any kind of drastic pushback. Yeah. You know, now's the time when we need to be pushing both sides to say, all right, dude, neither one of y'all are getting everything you want. It's time to find where is the right. least. And they admitted it. The Biden people done. said to the Post, officials admitted to the Post, buried the lead in the middle of the story about how, yeah, they know that the Ukrainians can't win ultimately, that it has to be a negotiated thing one way or the other. Well, that was the implication. They know that the Ukrainians can't win without what, just calling in American heavy bombers. So, all right, I'm sorry we're out of time, but um, thank you so much for your time again on the show, Dan. I really appreciate you. You bet, Scott. Always my pleasure. All right, you guys, that's Daniel L. Davis. He's at Defense Priorities, and he writes for 1945. It's the digits, one nine, and then spell it out, 45, 1945.com. And there's a whole bunch of great articles there for you to dive into. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.